0: In case you missed it, on News Talk, a look back at the week that was.
1: We are residents of Ireland and we went to Edinburgh for the weekend. We flew back this morning and we weren't asked for any documentation. And when we arrived in uh, Dublin, we were just asked to show our passport. We weren't asked for our passenger locator form.
2: So going both ways, into Scotland and into Ireland, there was no questions asked.
3: Easier, no. easier getting in Scotland, we didn't. know, <laughs> No documentation, nothing at all, just no, walk straight in, in.
4: the back door and straight out the front door. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah, not even a passport.
2: Where have you travelled from today? I'm coming from uh, Berlin, from Germany. And how was your flying experience? It was all right. And were you asked for your COVID cert and your passenger locator form? In uh, uh, Germany, yes. In, in Ireland, uh, no. It was like a, a, only the passport. From Berlin to Dublin, it was brilliant, 10 out of 10. And how was the experience, like, you know, coming into Dublin Airport and arriving in Berlin? Were you asked for your proper certs and uh, your locator
5: Yeah, you had to have your COVID digital certs and your um, locator forms, the whole lot, yeah. Everything yeah. had to be in order, yeah. They looked for every single thing, yeah.
2: Going and coming back? Going and coming back, yeah. Where did you come from this morning? Oslo in Norway you asked for all your locator forms and uh, generally speaking but it was easier than we expected coming through to be totally honest yeah it was yeah. easier when we got home yeah. Yeah. So yeah there's more questions being asked in oslo than yeah yeah yet. yeah i think I so decide, yeah. yeah felt a little bit easy to be totally honest <laughs> walk straight through to show the passport practically, practically yeah yeah
1: we yeah. just
6: had to show the passport nothing no passenger
2: locator form master for here
7: there was a form to fill out on the way back so I only found out when i was trying to board but other than that it's fine and uh, we
2: asked for that form then or
7: yeah was so for, on I actually don't think anybody asked me for anything COVID-related on the way over. Surprisingly, to get in was fine, and the only thing I needed on the way back was the Irish documentation.
2: And how was your flying experience coming to Dublin? Were you asked for your locator form? Or and- ask?
7: I was asked for ball. F- Just strolled straight through. No
0: COVID search or nothing. Passenger allocation form wasn't asked for. Nothing. Just stroll around. Passport.
8: That's everything.
9: Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now did you know that Bus Erin's youngest bus driver is just 23 and from Cork? Take a listen to this. Do you get much
4: reaction when people get onto the bus?
5: Oh definitely. Even Do Even people off the bus are shocked to see me um driving around. Like I've I've been in Bus Air in a year and a half. I mean I'm in the city every day and I'm I'm on country routes now as well some days, but every I'd say nearly every day people are shocked to see me on the bus. They I've been compared to a school child more often than I can count. And like yeah, they're just really, really surprised. Not only that I'm a woman, because it is still really it's surprising to see a woman driving a bus. It's the fact that I'm so young, and I mean I don't look that young in person, but people do compare me to a teenager when I'm driving the bus.
4: <laughs> and like, what do you say to them when they say this to
5: you? I just say, "Oh no, I'm I'm definitely not a teenager. I, I promise, I'm not a teenager." Yeah, it's um, it is funny. All right. <laughs> I
4: imagine if you're on some of the rural routes, then you probably you get to know some of the the passengers. I'd say.
5: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like what I do um, in Bus Aaron, I could be going anywhere any day. So I, I kind of jump from route to route. But I mean, I've gone to Galway a few times now. I've gotten to know a few people on that route. And down, up and down to Tralee and things like that. And and then in the city, you'd see people all the time. Do you know, even when you're on a different route, they'd recognize you and, oh, hello, how are you? And <laughs> you'd be chatting away to them. Like, it's it's a great job for that. It's yeah. so social. And, like, especially during the lockdowns last year, like, I found... That it was my saving grace because okay. I I love talking to people and I had people to talk to on the bus so it was nice.
4: Would you like to see more young people, young females, get into bus driving? Oh,
5: absolutely! Yeah, I mean it is a great job. Like, um, it is difficult. I don't get me wrong. Like, it is a hard job. Kind of mentally, you you do have to be watching everything. But other other than that, it is a great job. Like. Uh, we kind of all support each other in there, and like we all we're all on the same team, you know. So it's it is a great job. Like I'd love to see more women. I mean, we have seventeen women, I think, at the moment in Cork, and like we all help each other out. We all stick together, and yeah, it's a great it's a great atmosphere between us.
4: Do you ever get any um you know just I suppose what would you call it unsavory customers in the bus or any hassle or anything like that?
5: Um, not really. Yeah. I mean, you'd have, you'd have the odd comment, alright, but I, f- I find that they kind of leave the women alone sometimes that if you had someone coming on to give out, they kind of see you as a woman and, oh God, I won't give out to her, you know, kind of. I, I get that feel from it, but not really. I mean, you would have the, I mean, people trying to go to work if the boss was late or if something happened, you know, like stuck in traffic, people would be a bit crankier but not like I mean it's Turn off all the about air conditioning. <laughs> yeah it's all about how you deal with the um the situation yeah. you know.
9: The super capable Mary Cronin from Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. On Saturday Anton Savage spoke to Jenny Bond and Keen Egan about their experiences on I'm a Celebrity. Here's a short clip.
0: I'm a celeb and the experience Jenny what in
9: the periods when
0: you are not actually on screen what do you do because there's no books there's no phones is it not astonishingly boring
10: that is exactly it. That's your worst enemy, actually, boredom. Those days are incredibly long because you don't know what time it is. Um, they wake you up um, with a sort of clarion call or shouting at you to get up. Um, you've no idea what time it is. And you've got this long stretch till finally, and thankfully, they say you, <laughs> you can go to bed, basically. But, you know, we you, you rely on your own invention. I'm sure Kean's Kian, crowd did the same. We played stupid games. Katie Price, you know, Jordan, as she was then, she opened a little massage parlor which Peter Andre very much enjoyed <laughs> we did one another's hair all that sort of stuff games really
0: how much do you gossip because we, we got to see the Peter Andre Katie Price uh, romance uh, unfold on our screens was that a big topic of conversation when you were in
10: the jungle well, we could all see it happening. Yes, absolutely. And, um, actually, Diane Modal, she, the athlete, she was, um, she was very frightened. She used to hate going to the loo in the middle of the night because she had used, to, I, don't, I don't know if it was the same for Kian, but we had to tramp along a, a bank, uh, with snakes and things, or there might be snakes and get to this, this ghastly little, um, hole, which was a loo. Um, and so Diane was a bit frightened. So one night we, I said, look, uh, Peachy, you don't have to sleep in that hammock anymore. You can have, uh, you can have my bed and Diane and I will share, which we did, top and tail. Uh, we shared the bed. And in the middle of the night, do you know what? We saw Peter get out of my bed, which I have vacated, and creep across to Katie's. <laughs> I mean, it was outrageous.
0: Gian, <laughs> was there anything of that kind of romance in your experience?
6: <laughs> um, not really. First of all, I must say hello to Jenny. How are you, Jenny? Um, Very well. Hail the king. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, we didn't really have any romances blossom. Joey Essex kind of started flirting with one girl in there for a little while, but it never really came to anything. Um, it kind of just—it didn't really happen. I mean, I remember watching the the Katie and Peter thing go on uh, as a, as watching the show as a fan uh, before I did it. And um, yeah, I think that experience, I don't think it ever really happened outside of that one year. I don't think two of the celebs ever got together. So that was definitely different for Jenny than it was for me.
0: And Ken, how conscious are you of the cameras when you're in there? Can you maintain a sort of a a constant wariness? Because I assume you must just give Um, up at a certain point.
6: You do to an extent. I think, you know, when you first go in, you're very aware. You start picking out where the cameras are hidden, you know, amongst the camp. You know, and then as time goes on, you go, oh, there's a camera there, there's a camera there. But then really, as time goes on, you do kind of forget about it. You just get on with everyday life. But at the same time, you know, I think unless you're pretty dumb, you kind of do hold your tongue in certain situations because, you know, that there's a TV show being made. And if you say the wrong thing, they're definitely going to use it. And they're definitely going to, you know, they're looking for the drama. Right. You know, I mean, everything it, It was hilarious. I'm sure Jenny was the exact same. You'd come home when I came home, and I watched it back myself. I was I was gobsmacked with what they showed and what they didn't show. Um, you know, even more so what they didn't show. I think it was pretty obvious when we were in there. You know, if there was an argument in camp or if there was a dispute about something, that was the topic of of the show that evening. But you know, there were so many things that we did in there that just didn't exist on the TV show, and we were like, wow. I was like, how did they not show that? Why did they show that? I'd be sitting explaining to my wife, you know, what actually happened throughout that day, that that scene that they showed happened, and but I suppose that's TV, isn't it? You know, that you're in there for twenty-four hours a day, and they're only making one hour of TV.
0: What about the various different trials, Jenny? I might get your view on this first. You mentioned the the needing to fill the time in some way. Do you end up almost looking forward to the prospect of eating kangaroo genital just to have something to do? <laughs>
10: You look forward to the prospect of getting out of camp, you know, because the, the site uh, where the trials were um, in my day, you had to walk quite a long way through the jungle, as they call it, the rainforest, and that was lovely. Um, and then, yes, it does break up the boredom, because those trials take a fair bit of time by the time you set it up. I mean, I didn't enjoy particularly being buried underground in a coffin full of rats or eating. Well, in my day, everything was live. So live insects uh, wriggling around your mouth, you know, stick insects, um, crickets, um, and the fish eye. Oh, Ken, did you have to do the fish eye? Oh, I did, I had a fish eye, yes. ah, that was the worst. That was the I,
9: worst.
6: I, I unfortunately did have to eat parts of animals that were already dead and cooked, like a, what was it, a, a pig's anus, um, a pig's <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I, unfortunately went down that road, but oddly oh. enough, they were, Jenny, you probably didn't, if you didn't have that experience, they were almost easier than the live creatures, because I did also have to eat live cockroach, um, they were almost easier because really they were just chewy, dead meat, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and you just kind of chew down on it for a few seconds and then just get it down the hole where when you put the fish iron in your mouth and you. Down on it, and the popped. you <laughs> can feel everything in your mouth explode But did that. you?
10: Didn't you enjoy the hill? Of, what was it called? The hill of hell, where your f- the water cannons are fired at you at the end. Wasn't that fun? Oh, that was
6: amazing! That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they changed the the Cyclops. They called. They called yeah, the year right, I did it. That's right. That was great fun. Because yeah, that's the only time you do it as a team, really, as well, isn't it? You do a challenge as a team, and you, um, yeah. you know, there was there was five the year I did it. When we did the Cyclops, and you know, we all had to get to the top, and then the big water cannon comes. I mean, fantastic memories, to be honest, and I'm sure you're the same, Jenny. You know, I mean, it, it is something that you look back on in life and go, wow, I really did that. That was such a, an amazing experience, such a unique experience as well, because, you know, we can all go off and live in the rainforest for, well, it would be pretty difficult to go off and live in that rainforest for three and a half weeks on your own. But, you know, to actually experience that and to know that you're safe, to know that you're being looked after, to do with people that you've never met before and, and met really great memories with those people. I mean, it genuinely is, I'm sure you probably feel the same, Jenny, it genuinely is an amazing
9: experience. Jenny Bond and Keenegan Egan from The Anton Savage Show.
11: What are the most common problems that you hear from parents uh, about homework and their children, shall we say, politely declining?
12: Politely declining, that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um the look the, the age we're living in now at the moment it is different from when me or you were were in primary school um devices uh tablets smartphones television it's become a bit a big problem for parents um, that's why one of the one of the pieces of advice that we would always give to parents is ditch the devices until the homework is done have them locked away um it's look me and you both know that it's um it's very tempting to pick up your own phone and have a look. So you can imagine for for a child how tempting it is to, to pick something up. And then before you know it, half an hour has gone by and you've got no homework done.
11: Yeah, and when mm. should they do it? Because I know my, my um, good lady wife is very, very strong on the kids getting the homework done when they come in the door. Give them a few minutes to decompress, but get it done early so you don't have to worry about it later. Is 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 that the best way to do it?
12: Absolutely. I'm sure this isn't the first time this has happened, but your wife is 100% correct with that. Uh, the common uh, theme I'm finding with children who uh, get their homework done uh, efficiently is that they do it as soon as they come in a quick snack and, and straight into it this usually helps to avoid the inevitable distractions and tiredness that occurs as an evening is going on. An awful lot of children now as well are involved in activities so later in the evening they usually occur so if a child gets in early, get, has a quick snack, gets the homework done um, and out of the way it becomes less stressful and, and that is the big thing at the moment is, there's a huge amount of stress in a lot of families and really and truly homework isn't something that should be adding to that.
11: Yeah, well, Jonathan, we're still traumatised when we had to take over teaching duties from the likes of professionals such as yourself last year. And we realised our own educational shortcomings. Um, as a result, pr- parents are probably a bit scared by sitting over the homework because they realise there's a lot they don't remember themselves. And it's very hard to be a good parent ensuring the homework is done when you mightn't understand quadratic equations the way you hmm. used to.
12: Absolutely, um, and it's something that I think I think it can, with with homework as well. One of the one of the things about relieving the stress that parents feel is understanding your role, and your role there is to support your child, encourage your child. You know, your your role is not to teach new topics. the The idea of homework is that it's revision for uh, from the whatever's been done during the day. If there comes a point where you know it's just you're getting to the you're getting to the stage where too much time has been taken, um, then the best thing that at that point to do is to to wave the white flag, stick a note in the teacher in the in the diary for the teacher to read. It's much it's much more beneficial long term if the teacher's aware that the child is having difficulty, as opposed to just getting something done for the sake of it and moving on. We we have to look at this as as, as a long-term solution. Even when we think about recovering from COVID as regards the, the children's, not, not only their well-being, but their their academic development. Schools are looking at that as a long-term process. It's not going to be fixed overnight. We are looking at revising topics quite a lot more over the coming year as opposed to jumping straight on. So parents need to give themselves a break as well. I mean, we've we've been through a very, very difficult time. Um, I can only speak from my own experience in in Walkinstown, but the parents there have done an absolutely amazing job and I do feel that parents are putting themselves under a lot of pressure. It's, um, it's something that really came out there last year. And uh, we had a very good talk by Fiona Foreman on children's well-being. And for me as a school principal, it was a big eye-opener to see how much pressure parents are putting themselves under. Um, so I would hope with things like homework that understanding your role as a parent is there to support, not to teach new topics. Generally, your, ch- your children are going, to, are going to catch up. It just may take a little bit of time.
11: Where should the homework be done? Because there are different locations in the house and children know, children are sneaky, they know where to hide. I mean, children are really good at hiding. It, it's, it's one of their pastimes. Um, where should the homework be done so the parent can keep an eye on it?
12: fortunately in in my own school in in, uh, in assumption we don't we don't have sneaky children they're all, they're all very honest but uh, i'm sure that for the <laughs> i'm sure for the, those who do have sneaky children out there the the one commonality i found from speaking to the pupils themselves is the pupils who have a set place in their home to do their homework every evening at the same time where a pencil case is available so they're not wasting time going to get 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 um, their own resources those children seem to have a better experience with homework. Now, unfortunately, the way society is and the way people's living arrangements are, that's not always possible. So it's not the end of the world if you don't have a space like that. But if you can keep it consistent, maybe use local libraries if that's if that's a possibility. And uh, hopefully in the next few months, things like homework clubs will become, uh, will be opening up more. And that's another another option. But generally, yeah. a, a consistent space is is important.
9: Some smart tips from teacher Jonathan Hanley from the Pat Kenny Show. I.
0: C. U. M. I. In case you missed it. On News Talk.
7: I work, but like all of my money mostly goes to rent. And then I have maybe like a 10 or 20 euro for food. And like my parents we would qualify for Susie. Obviously, look, you're quite emotional and you're upset. And look, only speak if you, you want to speak. But Y- you I were do. saying, it's like, so. I don't, like, I qualified for just the fees, Susie, but because my dad was working in a factory during the pandemic, they were taking, like, they were paying some of the wages from the pandemic supplement or whatever, but if we actually, like, look at the pay slips, we're making under, we're making under minimum wage. So, like, my parents don't have the money to give me. I like this. Like literally go for like days without food or anything, it's just like not acceptable what the government is doing at the moment. They're not trying to help at all. You've just showed me what you have in your bank account twenty one cent since last Thursday. Like how how are you getting by? I literally is mostly noodles, and then like there's some days where I literally have a biscuit for the whole day. Like all the way up here, like my stomach was rumbling because like. Most of the days, I can't afford food. Have you ever thought about dropping out because things are so tight? Definitely, like, I think about it most days.
8: Yeah, David, there from a news university, obviously upset at the situation. It was interesting in the middle of that, Barry. He, he referenced his parents. I mean, we talk about how unaffordable it is for students. It's the parents who are paying it. Like it's it's unaffordable for parents. That's the the issue here because some people texting in like Paul and Tip. Uh, students can't afford education, but they can afford drinks and drugs when they want them. Give me a break. My heart bleeds for the mother joke and somebody else. Presumably, these are not the students who are queuing outside pubs last week as with the point being that's how they spend their money during the week like I said it's it's the parents who are forking out for all of this rent and all of these registration uh, fees and because the cost of both uh, I know some students you hear of commuting to college and commuting long distances Yeah that's very common I actually spoke to a student a few weeks ago for a report I did on
0: student accommodation and they told me they were driving from Letterkenny in County Donegal to DCU in Dublin five times a week that's a six hour round trip a sorry, day sorry up and
8: down Monday to Friday up and down
0: Monday to Friday now some days they may be sleeping on a friend's couch but most days they're driving up and down they have a part time job in Donegal as well so like a six hour drive that's like I drive for this job that's a that's a lot of driving a day I wouldn't want to be doing it how much does it cost them in fuel and yeah well the cost of petrol and diesel I saw today that diesel prices have increased by 28% and petrol prices 27% in the past year so if you're a student driving to college you'll definitely be hitting the pocket there as well while other students are having to get public transport to get to college which again is expensive here and I spoke to these three students from County Meath who are all commuting to DCU Personally I'm not able to afford
5: accommodation I come from like a large family so um, I travel I travel Ninety minutes every day to get up here and back.
0: So how much are you paying the um, travel costs?
5: About 70 euro a week to get up and down. And like some days it's only for one class and you spend 20 euro getting up and down for a 40 minute lecture.
7: How tough is it to, to get by as a student?
5: Uh, it's quite difficult, especially when you work um, only part time at the weekends when you can. Uh, my bank isn't doing too great at the moment. I'm living at the home at home at the minute, um, which I'm very lucky to do. I honestly don't know how people are living in accommodation and trying to support themselves at the same time. Like I, I know at least one girl in my course is actually homeless at the minute and still trying to get into college. Um, like for example, I'm I couldn't I can't see myself working more than ten hours a week, and I you need to, at least thirty hours a week to be able to support yourself. Um, so it's impossible for people who can't have financial support from their parents.
1: When I was looking at college, I didn't even think about accommodation because I instantly knew. Like, I can't afford it. Even later on in life, there's no way I'd be able to move up to Dublin. But especially as a student with the high cost, there's no way you can afford it. Well, m- me personally, I definitely couldn't afford accommodation. I'm travelling every day, uh, so that's a 40-minute bus journey to and from college every day. I spend kind of 40 to 50 euros a week, and then college fees are 70 euros a week. Um, and that's on a loan. That's not money I just have, so that's money I am paying back. Uh, I work at the weekends, so I work 12-hour shifts on the weekends and they are late nights, so the social life aspect of the weekend is completely gone for me because I have to work. So I can't imagine what it must be like for students who are also paying accommodation costs on top of that as well.
9: Barry White reporting for The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddyhy. On Saturday, John Fardy spoke to Benedict Cumberbatch for Screen Time. Here's a short clip.
3: Your character is fascinating, and despite Sycophanty or not, you play him brilliantly. And what was fascinating is his motivations are so curious, and and they're not revealed. And without giving a spoiler, you could even argue that they're not even revealed by the end of the movie. You know, he he was such a complicated fellow. How did you view him?
13: Um, with a great deal of empathy. I mean, you have to okay. sort of, I did a lot of psyche work. I did some, uh, dream, uh, Jungian dream analysis to get there. Um, which wow. is a, it's a incredible thing to do with a wonderful woman called Kim Gillingham to try and, you know, dig deep into the subconscious and try to, um, really marinate for a long time in this person's worldview and, and what, what my subconscious could do to, to trigger that or or help me with that was, was very, very interesting, but, you know, it, He's someone who um, it's partly a testament to how brilliant Jane is as a, as a narrative um, mm. storyteller, you know, both as a writer and a director that she could display his more abhorrent and angry nature to begin with in the film and then slowly, slowly, layer after layer reveal who he really is and still yeah. hold you without yeah. being completely revulsed by his behaviour in the process um, to a point where you actually absolutely understand who he is as he starts to open up and that you know truths about him are revealed um again I feel like I'm speaking in code because obviously out of respect yeah, to the work sure I haven't seen too much away but um I uh I relish that I mean you know the, the, the great gift I guess of any kind of screen acting is this this idea of holding a secret within or a subtext within yeah given moment in a story so a lot of what i saw as his worst behavior i i sort of felt were you know it's like a damaged child it's just it's outbursts of violent um reactive defensive angry behavior and toxic masculinity is sort of the kind of um bracket headline for for that that description i guess um and understanding what the fuel of that behind all that behavior what was motivating it was it's, it's one of the rare moments where you have an incredible blueprint to work with, both in Jane's script and also Thomas Savage's novel, which obviously has the ability to dance around in, in, in terms of time and give you mm-hmm. huge backstories and insights into um, the present tense drama. Um, and I really fell for him. And I think Jane and I both, in fact, the whole career, everyone did it. You know, this idea of trying to reveal... Uh, this tortured soul and what was at the root of um who he was really rich rich canvas to play with and uh, a dreamy kind of um list of ingredients and and motivations to work with as an actor really <laughs> wonderful
3: yeah, the, the you mentioned Jungian dream analysis, which is fascinating. We could go down a whole rabbit hole there. But like sure. in terms of the other stuff you did, you learned the banjo. Apparently yeah. you were waltzing with Jesse Plemons. So, you know, I don't want to say it was Marlon Brando stuff, but it was like there was a huge amount of preparation went into this
13: yeah which began almost a year before and I, I i went to montana and i i rode horses on ranches i steered cattle um i wow. was at um two branding events i i you know got used to what that was about branding cattle inoculating them and castrating them and that's that's pretty hands-on stuff yeah uh, banjo playing whittling uh what else whistling
9: Benedict Cumberbatch from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune in to John every Saturday evening from 6 till 7. On Sunday, Hidden Histories explores the Monaghan Soviet. And uh, it's quite the story. Here's author and historian Donald Fallon. Now, before the so-called Soviet was declared, I
2: suppose it's probably safe to assume that, this you know, it's not something that happens overnight. People just don't wake up on a sort of a gloomy Sunday morning and just go, you know what, let's just declare this a Soviet today. Like, you presume that there has to be some trouble brewing there for a while first.
14: And it took a long, long time. But eventually, two historians got down to the business of, of, of telling this story, you know, chronologically as it happened and explaining how it happened. holland Mulholland and, and, and Anton McCabe. And they write about this as something that was building up for months. You know, 96 attendants at the asylum went on strike in March 1918. So that's, that's just under a year before the so-called Soviet. Uh, and they won a war bonus of four shillings in union recognition, which, which, which were big achievements. But things kind of remained tense. There were more demands. And going into 1919, it kind of seemed like this thing was going through a head, like there could be a, a significant strike. And it was explained to the union organiser by the, the owners of the asylum that, they work for twelve hours a day for seven days, but they get every thirteenth day off and every fourth Sunday from ten o'clock. So, wow! How exactly, luxurious! Not exactly. Yeah, exactly. Twelve hour days. Twelve hour a day for seven days, and every thirteenth day off. It doesn't sound great, but the union organizer for the asylum workers was a guy called Padder O'Donnell. Uh, incredible life. Later, a, a distinguished novelist, magazine editor, literary critic, more besides. He came from Dunglow and the Rosses of Donegal. And at this point, he's. he's Kind of an up and coming figure. He's a young, rookie trade union official, a former school teacher, but he has incredible charisma. And when he arrives at the asylum, the, the workers put so much faith in him that they decide on the 24th of January 1919 uh, that they're going to seize the building. So this had never happened before. And even in, in our own living memory in recent years, I can think of so many examples of this from Debenham's to Waterford Crystal. It's now quite a common tactic that when there's a dispute and workers are worried, they they grab the site. But this kind of thing had never happened in Ireland before.
2: Uh, and I suppose it's worth bearing in mind too that this sort of thing had happened when, when land and, and property was not as infinitely valuable as it is now. So you can understand now if workers have an issue that basically you seize or you commandeer the thing which is most valuable, which is the site that it's actually on, maybe not so much uh, back in 1919. Um, some of the demands of the workers when they're declaring the Soviet, it might surprise us now. And maybe this is coloured by the fact that they worked uh, 12 days in a row anyway for 12 days at a stretch. Their reduced working week that they were demanding was still 56 hours.
14: Yeah, which is which is extraordinary, isn't it? And I mean, it seems that the place actually functioned quite well. <laughs> Even the management of the asylum had to admit that, to, to some extent, the place was functioning maybe better than it did normally. And Mulholland and McCabe they write about how uh, one guy who was quote spreading defeatism was locked in a padded cell. <laughs> that was wow. unfortunate for the worker. But there's 125 policemen kind of mobilised outside this asylum with a red flag flying over. it. They'd never seen anything like this before either. They weren't entirely sure uh, what to do, and and the report. Reports that end up in the American papers are brilliant. I mean, one one uh, U.S. paper tells their readers, "Madmen armed with iron bars have joined striking attendants at the Monaghan lunatic asylum and are helping them to beat off the attacks of policemen." But in truth, there's no such violence and actually what what the historians have looked at this in detail have found is there's evidence like they were playing football against the police trying to the, <laughs> the police would just gather around the asylum look at the red flag in the breeze they would play a game of football with the lads and it just kind of no one was really entirely sure how this thing uh, was going was going to play out but in the states the journalists managed, managed to make it perhaps a lot more exciting uh, what does the uh, place than, than what does the
2: place look like when it's declared a soviet does it have any kind of outward external indications that anything is sort of different
10: about it
14: Pat O'Donnell orders—the kind of barricading of the windows and the doors—and uh, then the red flag in the breeze is, is is the big thing. <laughs> okay. But there's also some accounts that the, the workers themselves—some of the, the the international press claim that the workers change into what's called the inmates' uniform, so they <laughs> they kind of look like they could be the patients uh, in case the place is, is is actually stormed.
2: So, like, mismatched pyjamas and the likes. <laughs> well, you know, each to their own. Um, to the surprise of many, this kind of, this bold experiment in, like, declaring the things to be the property of the worker and demanding for, for better rights, it all seems to work out pretty okay.
14: They seized the asylum on the 24th of January, and by the 4th of, of, of February, uh, they returned to work. They'd wonder demands, and they even host a, a victory dance, which at the time is a big thing in, in kind of Irish society, you know, the idea of of, of gathering the village for a dance. And the kind of manner in which it ended is interesting. There's the intervention of local clergy. I have to imagine that, you know, the clergy were probably less enthused by a red flag flying over the local asylum (laughs) than than most people. But the victories are real. I mean, they win a reduced work week, 56. I imagine celebrating a 56 hour work week, uh, a pay rise across gender lines, which is really interesting. You know, the same pay increase for men and women and a big one, the right of married people to return home after their shifts ended. I mean, there had been a time when it was common for workers to stay Uh, in their workplace and to to kind of live there in abodes Mm. they won the right to go home when when the working day was over so these were these were quite significant uh, victories
9: What an interesting story author and historian Donald Fallon from Hidden Histories on On The Record with Gavin Riley, and of course you can tune in to Gavin every Sunday morning from 11 till 1 Now this week News Talk launched its new true crime series Inside The
15: Crime Here's Frank Greeney
6: what was going through your head, Christy, that morning that Christmas morning? I thought
15: they were morning. in the field, I thought they were in, they were after escaping out the back, I thought they were going down the field, I thought they were out in the shed like, you know what I mean? And uh, the front room, the window, hadn't been broken and one man said, I said no, I said they're in there, in that place there and the window broke the window so the smoke came out so they came back. So I said i go around the back to see what in the shed's. And someone screamed, Christy, don't come back there because there's an air tank there could explode. But I didn't know until afterwards that they had the three bodies on the ground outside and they didn't want me to go in and see the three bodies. It was a two-story house and it all fell down on one side. And that side, the top came down in that room, but that never stirred. The roof in that room never even buckled. Or even the, the windows never even melted and once or twice i went down after that to look in to say you know god and just look at it you know and it being anything, to be nothing to happening you know but it was such an old old house you see and between the fireplace and the room there was a huge big block wall you know and that's what stopped the the flames from coming through in, in that room
6: and how did it come to your attention? Was it the knock at the door or was it the late oh, night phone? Oh,
15: the knock at the door. Oh, my God, i never forget when that man said Sarah's house on fire. And then she says, what's wrong? And I tried to get shoes and all, like, you know, just going down there, I could hear the slates cracking. You know what I mean? I flew down that road there, like, you know, the fire began and arms and all came then, like, you know what I mean? But I'll never forget that morning though it's 14 years this Christmas but it's as clear in my mind today as what happened that morning and all the men I, 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 I couldn't pray to them enough you know what I mean and I know the two chaps who'd been there they didn't want to any, you know, they didn't want to be sort of they should have got bravery middles
6: What was going to your head Nancy when there was that knock at the door?
15: I was full sure there was an accident. You know, the way you'd say, oh, oh, God, an accident. And he came back and he said, they're all gone. Gone.
10: He kept running around the place. I <laughs> can you still hear him saying, they're all gone. I kept, it must be a dream or something. I say, gone, where are they gone?
9: They're all dead, he said. From Inside the Crime Podcast on Newstalk.com.
0: I C U M I, in case you missed it. On News Talk. So, who was Thomas Parker and how did he come to create an electric car?
4: Thomas Parker is sadly too forgotten. Um, he was a really influential electrical engineer. He was responsible for electrifying the London Underground, the tube system. Um, so, when he uh, used these rechargeable lead acid batteries that he had created to power a small vehicle. Now, I t- I did tweet a photograph of this earlier, Sean, because it's interesting. I I would describe it as a horseless carriage, um, mm. and that's what that's what cars were called uh, when they first went on the on the streets when they were first seen. They were called horseless carriages, and they really did look like that. So, his car of eighteen eighty four it was open topped. Um, it had a steering wheel at the front. It could carry passengers, uh, two or three passengers in the back seat. Um, it was completely silent, like um, electric cars are today. And um, it was very easy to start, unlike uh, the motor cars, which came afterwards. It's important to note, I think, that the first, when we talk about the first motor car, people will often immediately go to. Um, um, Carl Benz, of course, who mm. later become famous for Mercedes-Benz. Um, Mercedes, I think, was his daughter. Um, uh, uh, but that, his first, Carl Benz's first car was actually 1885. So it's really interesting that Thomas Parker's electric car was one year before that. Um, so the electric car actually precedes the, the gasoline or the petrol powered car.
0: Yeah. Now, did, did Thomas Parker only build one of them? And did he use it himself?
4: Yeah, I think that's important to note. Um, this car was capable of mass manufacture, but it wasn't put into mass manufacture. However, the model that he built, he did use himself for 14 years. He commuted from his home in Wolverhampton into work every day using this electric car in the 1880s and 1890s, which is extraordinary um, to think. It's sort of like... um. Back to the future, in a way. Um, it's mm. incredible and surprising, I would imagine, to many people that this level of technology, which we still consider very contemporary and very new, that it was, um, that it was happening in the late 19th century at the, uh, as well.
0: And by the same token, the first
4: motorised cabs, in, or in London at least, were electric. And New York, Sean. Um, ah. It's extraordinary to think that in 1899 at the very turn of the century, 90% of the taxis in New York City were electric. New York City, a city which is so synonymous, the streetscape, with those famous yellow taxis, 90% of those were electric over 120 years ago. Um, But it was a man by the name of Walter C. Bursey who brought the uh, electric taxi into the world first. That was in London in 1897. And they were beautiful. We talked about the history of the taxi on this last couple of years ago, and if you remember, Sean, I was talking about the hansom cabs um, at that mm. time, which were the little two-seater horse-drawn carriages, which were able to turn on a sixpence, um, which was the the big thing for London cabs. And um, Bursi's electric cabs—they were called hummingbirds because they were so silent. They're electric, of course, and their livery was similar to that of a hummingbird, yellow and brown. And it could take two passengers and it was lit up inside as well, um, which was very peculiar for well-to-do people um, going around London at that time. For a horse-drawn taxi, you were always in darkness, but suddenly you were lit up for everyone to to see you as you went by in your fancy electric motor. Um, There were 75 in the fleet at the top, of this game um, before everything began to crash down just around the turn of the century, Sean. We see a very rapid demise in the development of the electric car market.
9: Some fascinating facts there from Simon Tierney from Stuff That changed the World. On Thursday, the hard shoulder explored the legalisation of cannabis for MS sufferers.
8: And does does your husband's neurologist? Does he know that you're growing your yeah. own?
9: Well, he
1: doesn't know I'm growing my own, but he knows he smokes it.
8: And what it's does on he on his medical
1: records? Well, you see, when you go right, um, you might see there's one top consultant neurologist, and then every year you go to see them, you might see somebody different. So three years ago, I saw a man who wrote a letter to the government um, recommending the legalization of cannabis for multiple sclerosis and everything else. Mm. And then the year after, I saw a young doctor and the second I got cannabis out of my mouth, she said, no, no, we don't do that. So there's no consistency when you go to doctors asking for it. There's no, like, there's all these different opinions. Nobody wants to, like, unify behind it and legalize it. And I just, at this point, I don't know what you could possibly say to me that would make me feel like I'm a bad person. And I don't know how, if you stood in front of me, that you could justify your position in keeping it from people who need it. So that's how I feel about doctors. That's the experience I've had with him and, and trying to get him help for this. And it damages, it damages your faith in society, in other people
15: Mm. and
1: in doctors. Like if they, if you know for definite that what you're telling, that what you're telling them is the truth and that they aren't informed enough to know it. And like, if you're not informed enough to know the benefits of medical cannabis at this stage, after seeing it in America and everywhere else, then what else are you not informed on? Like, Why should we trust anything we, that you tell us? And like, I don't believe that my I think my doc, my husband's doctors are fabulous, but it's, it's very easy in an age of disinformation to now turn and use that against them and make people lose faith. In the medical system and in going to doctors when they need something. So there's so much that um, there's so much bad from criminalisation that it just can't be justified, and it definitely can't be justified now when we're in economic recovery and when it comes to like recreational use. Like, what? How else are we going to recover? Like, I mean, they have ceded this entire market, which is probably worth billions, um, to the Kinahans or the UVF, or whoever else has decided that they're going to grow it, instead of legalising it, putting a shop in every town, putting a course in the agricultural science colleges to teach it to farmers, and giving farmers an option away from like carbon-heavy farming like beef, mm. for example. Yeah. None of it makes any sense at all at this point to me, and that's why I'm reaching out now because um, I think it's time it really is time that cannabis users and particularly growers and medical users start coming forward and using their voices so that we can start kind of building our economy back after COVID and also bring people in out of the cold and stop prosecuting them for something that they don't need to be prosecuted for and they wouldn't be if they were in other countries
8: Let me ask you then finally GT about that because we haven't given your real name and you didn't want your name to go out because what you're doing is illegal. How worried? You're obviously a little bit worried. You're worried enough not to want to be identified. But how worried are you about the guards knocking on the door and saying, what's in that tent?
1: It never goes out of my house. I don't sell it. I don't take it anywhere. Um, It stays in my house or it stays in my shed. So I am worried that they're going to find me eventually. Um, But... I mean, my more important thing that I'm worried about is my husband and his health. So if they prosecute me, that's fine. As Like, I can probably cope with that. I'll use it um, to get more kind of publicity for the cause. And I know that if I was convicted by 12 people in a jury in a courtroom, I'd have far more than 12 people outside that courtroom who are on my side because i know people who have gone to prison for for drugs and stuff like that and it has ruined their lives like and there's one friend of mine that i have that i'm thinking of in particular and he's probably going to be listening to this later and i just every time i think about it it just makes me so angry because he's such a kind person but he's shunned now because he he's been to prison like so <laughs> if i go to jail i go to jail that's fine yeah. I can cope with that, life. but I won't. I'm not going to be sorry for. her. I'm not going to feel guilty. And um, if they want to come and arrest me, then come and arrest me, like. But if it, if it was a guard's wife and she walked into my house and said, "I have MS and my um, my symptoms are so bad and nothing's helping, and I want I want to try a bit of cannabis," you know, anybody who does it, I would hand her a jar. I would take no money off her. I would tell her to go home. I, I talk her through the process of what it's going to be like when she takes it and then I tell her to ring me tomorrow because it, morally it does not make sense to me to, for people to suffer. It really doesn't. So they can
9: they can arrest me, they can do whatever they want, but I'm not going to stop growing. <laughs> what a remarkable woman. Patient Advocate Green Tea from The Shoulder with Ciaran Cuddehy. OK, I'm going to leave you with now. Own Sheen and off the balls crappy quiz. Have a great weekend.
6: Nobody
16: up. scores anything. Top We're done time time straight away. I, I Like I, I it's. Am I right about that?
9: So is rough just, ride
16: in there. Rough ride was in there, yeah. Uh, oh, but geez, none of I you got there. A of very, very quickly, going to ra- race through these from well inside right. all the way up to the cur- current. <laughs> you don't need
11: to give us them all. Give us,
16: give us a. Give us a yeah, true. Uh, rough ride is on. Muhammad Ali is life, life and times. Tom's Hauser, Nick Hornby, Fever Pitch uh, was in there. Football against Still. the enemy was in there. A good walk spoiled. Was in there Dark Trade by Donald McRae. Uh, was in there. Da, 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 Back in uh, the Brink,
13: 2006 winner. What are you on about?
16: You're looking at the wrong sports book awards, Tommy, I suspect. William Hill, Sports Book of the Year, 2006. 2006, I'm saying Unforgivable Blackness, The Rise and Fall of Jack Johnson by Jeffrey Ward is the winner.
0: Uh, this is this, this, this this the winner. This round, this question. William Hill Irish Sports Book. Are we of the year? talking about Irish sports books, lads?
16: No, we're not. We're talking about the, the oh. William Hill Sports Book oh, no, of the Year. Oh no, he knows he's, he's on the, shaky ground. You're Hill joking. Sportsbook. You and I were own. both in that Tommy. We both. Tommy, you're joking, we should Tommy. A point. You never Tommy, we,
13: said Irish. You never. Yeah, yeah it it didn't been, <laughs> that I
16: didn't
13: that say Irish. That's the whole point. I didn't say
16: Irish. The William Hill Sports Book of the Year is the UK one, which Irish books have entered, and one in the past. It is it is the the peak of the sports book industry awards and uh, Tommy and
0: myself should get a point there no anyway. you
16: shouldn't it was yeah. just it was an unforgivable uh, lack of, of knowledge of, the of your own subject uh, round four is a fun free magic number round contestants get What's three points for getting the number exactly right it's Phil two Tommy one Adrian nil if no one manages that the nearest contestant who doesn't go bust gets two points the second closest gets one point I can only accept the answer that's written on your paper and I'm also going to, have to ask for your pens once the music ends so if you don't mind give us the following number the number of managers that have already lost their jobs this Premier League season Plus, the number of senior goals Chidoze Zéogbené has scored for the Republic of Ireland. Plus, the number of goals the Republic of Ireland conceded in their 2022 World Cup qualification campaign. Plus, the number of Drivers' Championships won by Lewis Hamilton so far in his career. Their 30 seconds expire when Sinatra sings Bright, Shiny Beads. So, the number of Premier League managers that have already lost their job this season. Plus, the number of senior goals that has scored for Ireland the number of goals Ireland conceded in their World Cup qualification campaign and how many Formula 1 driver's championships has Lewis Hamilton won add them all up
13: what do you get Tommy will go to you first here 20. 20 20 Phil 22 22
16: Adrian 28 28 the answer is 22 Phil Egan three points that's, going that's how he does it you know yeah. oh. that's how he does it uh, take us through this Phil the number of managers that have lost their jobs in the Premier League five five Munoz Bruce oh. Nuno Fark Smith Ogbenny scored how many goals two three. Yeah. how many goals did Ireland concede eight three. and Lewis Hamilton seven. seven there you go 22 Phil Egan on five Tommy on one Adrian on nil this is a story as old as time I C
1: U
0: M I, I. in case you missed it on News Talk.